You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode number 11 for May 18th, 2015. I'm your host, Russell Eileen Willems. Today on the show, I talk with Nicole Giglio, an independent contractor who specializes in digital content development, about her work managing social media channels for cultural heritage organizations, and in designing a mobile app-assisted exhibit for the San Diego Museum of Man. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for being on the show with us today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. So you do digital content development for museums. Can you talk a little bit about what that involves and how you maybe got started in that arena? Sure. So I've been doing social media for about, oh, I would say, almost three years. And that kind of got me into this uh, position at the San Diego Museum of Man. The director of the museum, Ben Garcia, had contacted me saying that, oh, there's a six-month position to create basically audio recording, video, um, and text and pictures in an app that kind of supplement the exhibits because a lot of museums don't have the money to revamp all of their exhibits, and especially in anthropology, if there's a physical anthropology section, and it kind of needs to be updated. So it was basically just a way for them to update the museum without actually physically updating it. So, yeah, I just kind of got into it. People know that I write content for social media, so that kind of bleeds into writing digital content for apps. So, yeah. That's interesting. So did you come up um, having done personal kind of social media things, or did you work with other organizations in the past on building Uh, a social media presence? My other job currently is with a company called Great Museums Television, and they're based in the East Coast, and they do documentaries on museums um, kind of all over the United States. And so I've been doing social media posts for them for almost three years. So, and then I also worked for a university, my undergraduate university in Fresno, California. I did social media for six months. So it's kind of, just kind of happened. I don't know how I got into it, but and I'm definitely active in my own personal social media, but it's definitely a different world to do it for organizations. Were you, is your background, is your degrees in archaeology and museums, or is it actually in sort of a media background and you ended up doing social media for museums? No, it's actually the first. So I got um, a bachelor's degree in anthropology with an emphasis in archaeology, and then my master's degree is in museum studies. So I never was trained, you know, never thought that I was necessarily going to go into digital media, but it just kind of happened as I was taking all these classes and learning, oh, things are kind of going in this direction of you need to kind of have this balance of tech in what you do because it's kind of happening in almost every field now. So I just kind of fell into it, I guess. (laughs) Sounds like fun. Yeah. Could you describe for us, uh, I guess, if there was a typical day in your work, what do you do with all the social media for these different organizations? So like with great museums, it's kind of nice because I could in one day schedule out posts for an entire week if I knew like, okay, we're going to post about this documentary today and then this news happened that kind of relates to this other film. So I could literally sit on the computer for eight hours and just kind of schedule out posts as far as I want. Um, Usually I try and not overdo it because then I don't work for a week and that's not fun. So doing that kind of on the side, and I can work from home for my other job at the San Diego Museum of Man because it's all computer-based basically too. And I do like do outreach, like try and find new followers and, and see, find people that would be interested. And right now we're definitely getting a lot of museum professionals like myself, you know, kind of coming in and, and watching our videos because it does give people the chance to see museums that they necessarily couldn't travel to. So talking to people, I, I don't handle a lot of the PR really. It's mostly just creating the content. So writing and, and that just kind of comes naturally in a lot of ways. I mean, it is interesting to always have to condense things down, which I know at the beginning for me was really hard to not want to write out like a giant paragraph about what I'm posting about. And Twitter definitely helped <laughs> keep that down to a minimum because they do have the 140 character cap. So yeah, it, it's, it kind of changes day by day, but it is interesting in how flexible that it is. You were mentioning earlier you did a sort of a, a bit of Twitter, um, some video work as well, I believe you said? Well, with Great Museums Television, they're a documentary 
company, so they have videos, and so I'll tweet out about them. I don't know if that's what you were talking about. Yeah, well, I was wondering, do you, for some of your social media, do you do, I guess, like Vine or anything like that? Any of those sort of, or YouTube, or are you mainly more of a Twitter, Facebook sort of text-based social media? Um, Great Museums is on YouTube. I don't really handle actually posting the videos because a lot of the actual raw content is in the East Coast, but I do post the links to that. Um, they did... I did kind of push Instagram and Vine recently, and we've kind of hit a snag because since I don't have access to a lot of the actual video files, I can't, you know, take those six-second, ten-second clips that, you know, especially now that, you know, Facebook, when you go into Facebook and you watch a video and it immediately starts playing, I mean, I know you can change that, but that did get a lot more views, so if we can post a video directly to Facebook, that's kind of a great incentive because we get more views and, and more interaction. So that's something that we're definitely working on that is somewhat a problem because I don't have access. And um, so I can write as much as I want, but having the actual media is the most important part. What sort of social media range are you, you were talking about, you know, getting more views on Facebook. What is sort of the, I guess the best way to describe this, the, the level you're at with your thing, are you happy when you get a couple of hundred views? Do you, are you in the thousands? Well, it's it's interesting because I try and not look at it in that way. I mean, I know it is important to figure out, like, are, are we not declining? Are we losing followers? Are we losing likes? Um, but we don't really have, like, a set specific, like, okay, we need to get 100 views. Um, typically, I would say, like, I think on Facebook we have a little over 2,000 um, likes, and on Twitter we have, like, around 1,700. Um, but depending on the post and, like, using hashtags, obviously we reach people that don't necessarily follow us. And so some videos will get thousands upon thousands of views, and they did one on the Highline Park in New York, and that was narrated by Susan Sarandon, so it really kind of had that kind of celebrity focus, or at least not a focus, but she was in it, so she tweeted it, and so it really depends on, you know, if we have someone that has a bigger follower base that will retweet or repost on Facebook, then it kind of gets out there. So we're pretty much just anytime we move up is great, and they're not specifically ever like hard on the numbers. It's more just are people watching, are people interacting, and we're not just sending it out and getting dead air every time because that would be a problem. So, Nicole, you mentioned that part of a way that museums, um, especially on social media, get a lot of looks at some and likes at their social media uh, posts is by having other people retweet or repost those things. Do you take any active steps, uh, such as following other people that you know have a lot of followers or interacting, especially with people that comment on posts or like posts, to kind of build more of a personal relationship with those users? Absolutely. I mean, the first thing that I did that I just intuitively decided to do when I started working for them was uh, following other museums, um, especially the ones that we feature in our films, because they will be the ones that will always retweet when we're featuring them. So it's kind of like a collaboration with the museums and, and so they can show their visitors or people that want to visit, you know, sneak peeks at their museums. But then, yeah, interacting just with people that love museums, love history, art, science, just people that I can tell are very active. Of course, we get a lot of, you know, spam accounts and stuff that I'm always like, okay, they're not on very much, so are they, I hate thinking like, oh, you're not worth trying to, you know, follow. But if I can tell that someone is posting a lot of content that has to do with our subjects and with museums, then yeah, I absolutely want to interact with them and show that, you know, social media is a collaborative and interactive environment. It's not just, here's these videos, watch them, and don't talk to me. Because that, you know, I, it wouldn't be as rich of an experience if we did that. Yeah, that's something I've noticed with organizations, companies, um, and people that have a social media presence is that there's kind of two groups. There's the ones that just push content one way mm -hmm. and have, you know, here's the latest thing or here's the thing I'm doing. And then there's ones that you can tell there's a human voice behind. I've seen, I think it's the um, African Burial Ground Museum in New York. Mm -hmm. does a great job of interacting and commenting on people's stories and actually having like a presence, like you can have a conversation with that museum or whoever's running the Twitter account. And I mean, even some oddball ones, like I know the Washington State Department of Transportation 
it's just their traffic Twitter, but instead of just pushing out, there's an accident on I-5, they actually, you know, will crack jokes. They have a little bit more personality to them. And I find that that gets a lot more people involved and engaged rather than just having that one-way kind of broadcast of information. Exactly. Speaking of traffic, like, I think where I learned it was when I did social media for um, California State University Fresno. Um, there's a big event center right next to the school that happened to block up traffic for students coming to school. We were kind of the voice that was like, okay, we're letting you know what streets are open and we're really sorry this is happening. You know, Fresno State has no control over it, but you know, if, if you have any issues, just let us know. And, and we definitely got a lot of feedback that it was nice that they had that voice versus, you know, I think universities a lot of times can get seen as, you know, oh, it was just a bunch of people in an office that don't interact with the actual student body. So it was nice, especially since I was a student at the time, to be like, I totally know what you're going through. I had to drive here today, too, and it's terrible, but we're going to get through it and everyone understands. So that type of mindset, you know, I did that in 2011, so that's kind of how going into social media is like, no, I need to be a human presence versus I'm not just scheduling tweets and writing it out like I'm a robot because that doesn't get the same interaction as a voice. Like you can tell my personality kind of seeps into, I try and keep it down a little bit because I don't, I want to also make sure that I stick to the tone that Great Museums wants and the same tone that the San Diego Museum of Man would want in their exhibits is that I know how I would talk, but I also want to stick to these institutions that I'm working for and be true to them. And what are those types of conversations like whenever you're, you're talking with an institution and you want to make sure that they have a distinct voice and you're not being too casual or too flip, but you're also not being very cold or impersonal? Um, how does that work in your experience? Do you have to talk to a bunch of people at the museum and figure out what that voice is together? Or is there someone dictating, you know, this is what's okay, this is what's not okay? Or is it pretty wild west that, you know, you don't hear any feedback until you do something they don't like? <laughs> it's definitely been all over the board, I would say. Um, because, like, I worked for a museum when I lived in the Bay Area. It was a very small museum. I was their only staff member, and so I kind of did everything. It was my baby, and I just had to have the mindset of who am I talking to? I need to make sure I can still be funny, but that I'm also getting out the information. In, like, the case of San Diego Museum of Man, it's definitely been a learning process because I don't think they really thought about, like, that. I mean, it, it seems so normal to think well we have a marketing presence so what do we stick to but you know their their facebook page is completely different than you know their pamphlets and so the voice kind of shifts and so i just wanted to know you know where do you want me to stand on this app and they said that because young adults are typically the ones that will first download mobile apps that they wanted that voice to speak young adults so it really depends on the situation the museum itself but yeah having those conversations it kind of I typically notice it's like oh yeah we need to think about that don't we so we you know it's not just I just plop information in and it works like there is thought behind it and in a conversation with the museums in doing uh, kind of a social media presence for different organizations do you have any tricks or tools that you use to collect metrics, uh, such as whenever you advertise a uh, exhibit or a new event, tracking, you know, what rise in attendance is due to people hearing about it on social media? Because I don't do social media at the Museum of Man, I'm kind of useless for them, which I think it would be really interesting to know because they definitely have a big viewership. When I worked for the Treasure Island Museum in San Francisco, they were so small but I still noticed that when I would post about a new exhibit opening that I would see, I, you know, I would kind of look at the profiles and look at faces, look at their profile pictures, and then I would notice, okay, they're here. When younger people came, because the museum was very, like, it was on the 1939 exposition in San Francisco, so there were a lot of older um, visitors, and so when young people came, it was kind of like, oh, they're seeing this on Facebook because I would ask the board members and they would say, oh, no, we, these people, we've never seen them before. So it's as simple as, especially when it's in a small museum, to see that change. But also just, I mean, looking at the metrics within Facebook and Twitter, they've made it so easy now that, you know, when I started, there wasn't as much like I can now see, oh, that post really wasn't successful because they have 
all of the metrics within the website and you can go post by post and, and see who's liked it and, and see when you've lost followers and you can kind of really tie it together really easily because I had no background in that when I started in 2011, did not know how to track any of that and now it's like, oh, they, they do it for you and for free. So it's kind of a tool that if you don't utilize it, it's really you're taking it for granted because it's all there. Hey everyone, I'm back with Jordan Harbinger from The Art of Charm. Jordan, we've been growing our listener base over the last few months. Why don't you tell everyone again what they can get out of listening to The Art of Charm podcasts? Hey, so what we do at The Art of Charm, especially on the show, is we take tools that ultra-high performers use and we make them accessible and we teach them to you. So what we primarily specialize in is relationship building, which is powerful for people in your field because any, well, any academic field or any field, period, because as everyone knows, you only, get, it, it's all about who you know, right? And most people say that like, well, it's all about who you know, and they don't like that because they're on the losing side of that equation. What we wanna do is put you on the winning side of that equation where you say, wow, I'm glad it's all about who you know because maybe this isn't the strongest or maybe I don't wanna sleep under my desk and try to outwork everybody or maybe I'm doing both of those things but I still want an edge. Your relationships are what's gonna deliver that. So we teach people how to do that, especially people who have kind of an analytical mindset, like a lot of people you might know, if you know what I mean, and they can apply these very practical skills. We don't say things like, just put yourself out there. I don't do that. I say, all right, what you're gonna do is this, and then you're gonna get this information, you're gonna connect these people together, you're gonna follow up in this amount of time, and you're gonna say this. And that makes it a heck of a lot easier because there's no guesswork and there's no fingers crossed, hope this works type of system. It's a real system. Awesome. Check out the Art of Charm podcast wherever you get podcasts and at www.artofcharm.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. We've been talking with Nicole Giglio about her work developing digital content and social media for museums and other heritage organizations. In kind of researching you online a little bit and learning more about your background, I thought you have a really great master's thesis uh, talking about digital media and kind of digital services for museums. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to that as a thesis topic? Sure. It's pretty much what happened in my life, in my studies, was that I started in anthropology and archaeology and, you know, went on a dig and I loved it, um, but didn't really know what I was going to do if I wanted to work in the field or if I wanted to make myself more flexible to being in office environments, museum environments. And when I had talked to my one of my art history professors actually at Fresno State, he had suggested taking museum studies uh, masters, which there aren't a ton in the United States. So once I went there, there was a new technology course that I took pretty much right before I started writing my thesis. And I was like, I work in social media. I love new tech. What are anthropology and archaeology museums doing with new technology, if anything? And so it was kind of not only just my interest in the field of both archaeology and new tech, I also kind of wanted to, if things weren't happening, figure out a way to make it easier for anthropology museums to feel like they could. Because my natural inclination was that, oh, they're probably not because I see a lot of the history museums that I could go to in San Francisco and they were pretty much, you know, brick and mortar physical exhibits and didn't really utilize new tech. So I just wanted to see what was happening and kind of do a survey. Um, and yeah, it was, I definitely found some interesting results and talked to some people that were a little angry, which was a, an interesting response. I didn't think that people would hate new technology as much as I thought they did and that they thought that it would somehow belittle and, and just make the exhibits and the content, you know, lesser, that they thought that, that history and the artifacts themselves could speak that's all that's all that they needed and it's like well i completely agree that clearly museums have have worked for this long and that anthropology and archaeology all these finds you don't necessarily need new tech to interpret it but on the other hand it, there is just a lot of options and saying no to those options was kind of surprising to me that i always figured museums were more open-minded to change and maybe they're not 
Well, and when you met that, I guess, or, or found that kind of resistance in surveys and other studies that you did, did you see any evidence for, you know, if I were working in a museum and someone was a little bit hesitant about some of these social media or digital content projects, about small ways to maybe start or introduce that and say, hey, here's a pilot project that could kind of get people to see an impact or any avenues to kind of convince people, hey, let's give this a shot, even if it's just a small, short-term thing. Sure. Um, even though I didn't cover it in my thesis, I would always use social media as like the first step because even though it's not in the exhibits, you don't really see it when you're visiting a museum, it is an outreach and it is technically new technology. Um, so I would always push that first to say, if someone has, you know, five hours in their work week to schedule posts, that is enough, that will be a starting point. But it was really just having conversations within the museum and within staff members was like one of my top recommendations of just being open to it and researching it because there are a lot of grants especially now that are specifically new tech. That's the project that I'm doing at the San Diego Museum of Man is completely grant funded. So it's just if you are willing to focus on it and really give it a chance, you can always find a way to fund it. Um, I think, it, yeah, it's just convincing them and talking about it and making them feel comfortable with it. And I think that's the big reason that it, there is resistance is that if you're not comfortable with something, you kind of don't want to spend the time, especially at the rate that new tech changes, is that was the other thing that I would hear is that, oh, well, it's just going to change in a year, so I'm going to get this fancy tablet or this touch table or whatever, and it's going to change in a year, and then I'm going to have to update it, so why would I? And it's like, oh, <laughs> I understand their, you know, idea ideas behind that, but it is still worth it, so it is an interesting conversation. So you mentioned that now, in addition to doing social media, you're also working on some digital content projects and doing digital exhibits. Are you building an application or an online website for the museum? So I am not actually building the app. Um, there's a company company in Canada called Wayfarer. So it's like Wi-Fi instead of Wayfarer. Um, but the reason that it's called that is because it is location-based. So they came to the museum, San Diego Museum of Man, in September and they set up these Bluetooth nodes like all throughout the museum kind of not necessarily in the ceiling because we are in a very old tall building but kind of hide them and then that allows the user in the app to walk around the museum and it's pretty much like Google Maps it knows where you are and so if there's content that I have placed basically a point of interest it will pop up and kind of say like, this is over here. Are you interested? Do you want to see it? And you can also um, just kind of look at a list view and see all of the different exhibits and extra content that's available and see what you're most interested in because that's something that I found when I go into a museum is that it's like, well, I usually look at the paper map or ask or somehow find out, you know, what exhibits there are, and I will always gravitate toward the one that I'm most interested in first. So I think that's kind of what they wanted for the space is a way to not only add supplemental material to the current exhibits, but kind of help people walk through the space and explore it more because it is the building itself was built in 1915, so it is very old and kind of lots of staircases and, and weird hallways, so it's also a map, an interactive map. I think you raise an important point that you can be aware of some of these new technology things and especially the strategy behind them, uh, like with some people that maybe already existing app or have a system that they're willing to put in place, but where you are valuable is building that specific content and knowing about museums, about how people might want to look at them, what their needs might be, and to offer that supplemental uh, kind of information in the museum experience. So uh, we have a question from Doug. So Nicole, with your work, do you have um, some tools or software that you use kind of regularly to handle all of this sort of different social media stuff? Um, do you use like Twitter deck or you know something like that? Or do you do this all by hand, as it were? I used to use Hootsuite for a while to do Facebook and Twitter at the same time and Google Plus because um, we do use Google Plus as well. Because um, right now, like for social media, we're on Google Plus, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Vine, and Pinterest. And so 
when it, we were just doing Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus, it made sense to just use Hootsuite because then I could just do it all right there. But now, because of Pinterest and Instagram and Vine, as far as I'm aware, you pretty much have to be using your phone with Instagram and Vine to manage that. So because I'm kind of all over the place, I pretty much prefer to just have a bunch of tabs open on the ones that I can access um, online. And then for the ones that I have to do for my phone, I got to do them for my phone. So it's, it's okay for me to handle things that way. If I were doing it for a bunch of different accounts, that might be another story. But it would be great if they somehow made it all seamless and you could use every social media uh, website ever in one, you know, something like Hootsuite. But I feel like right now, because they're all very specific um, and different, that it, it's just easier for me to do them separately. So, Nicole, you talked about using these different platforms like Pinterest or Facebook or Twitter. Do you have a way that you tailor different content for those different types of applications? Like a Vine doesn't necessarily make a good Facebook post. A tweet doesn't necessarily make a good thing for Instagram. Uh, quite the opposite, in fact. Or are there just some things that you only use certain accounts for? Sure. Like with Instagram, if there, we have any really great still photos or photos that um, the producers of the films take, I'll be like, can you send those to me and I'll Instagram it because then it feels like, you know, here are these directors, these filmmakers sharing, you know, behind the scenes stuff. And so that, you know, is kind of what I do for Instagram and, and Vine. Um, it'll basically just be little clips. I haven't gotten there yet, but my idea, and once I finally get access to the media, is to just add clips from the videos so they're kind of little teasers for people to watch. Um, and yeah, Twitter, you know, I always have to condense down what I'm saying, so I try and make it informative, but also, you know, use as many hashtags as I can, or at least words that when people put it into the search, it'll pop up with museums. I always try and have museum somewhere, you know, in the tweet. And so, yeah, it is one of my biggest pet peeves is when people tweet content that links back to Facebook. And I mean, I have no, I'm, I'm not saying that you're a horrible social media person. If you do that, I understand everyone is, you know, has not all the time in the world or they may not do it. They're, they have another job and they're just doing it because they have to, but it really doesn't work to always have that like Facebook link at the end and have the post like cut off halfway through the tweet. So spending the time to just, you know, condense what you said and actually tweet it really has a bigger impact. And do you have some, I guess, pearls of wisdom for any of our listeners in terms of Social media. So someone wants to set their own social media account, maybe for a project, something like that. Uh, do you have any suggestions, any tricks and tips that you've picked up over the years? Well, like I said earlier, the having a voice, choosing what that voice and that tone is and kind of sticking to it is really big. Um, so if you're going to have humor, stick to that humor and know when you're going to cross the line. If you're going to be more serious and more informational, that's totally fine because I definitely follow a lot of accounts that aren't funny, but if it's in a topic that I like, you know, if you're going to post interesting stuff, you know, being able to find news articles that relate to whatever project you're doing is also really big because not only do you kind of get that extra interaction because someone might not see that news article unless they see it through you. They kind of look at you as a source of information, but you will also catch people that, you know, if something's trending, you're kind of riding on the back of that news article. So I will definitely, like if I know something big has happened at a museum that we've done a documentary on, or I know at the San Diego Museum of Man, if there's a new discovery in archaeology, um, or like when the Greenpeace uh, hurt the Nazca lines, she posted about that because, you know, that's something big that is happening and it relates back. So if you can, you know, kind of have either news articles, you know, you can use Google to do that, to have, you know, a search always going to see like what's happening and following other people on Twitter that are in the same vein. So then not only are you reading what they're posting, but they notice your presence and kind of interacting constantly and talking to people. So not just posting, but using it as a communication tool. 
So yeah, I think what I can think off the top of my head are definitely like the most useful that I've come across in all my time doing it. So Nicole, with the hashtags and other things that kind of highlight things on social media, do you ever work those into the physical exhibits, such as the hashtag? I've been to um, the Museum of History and Industry here in Seattle, and they have some really interesting things where um, they'll have a hashtag on a placard, and if you tweet something with that hashtag, like a light bulb lights up at this exhibit inside the museum. Um, but ways to kind of tie that online presence to the physical exhibit? That would be so cool. Like, I love it when museums utilize that. Um, at the Oakland Museum of California, they do that constantly. And I think it's fantastic and smart because it gets people to interact rather than just walk by an exhibit. In this case, because I really only had six months to do it, I don't think that they're prepared to actually change their exhibits. They haven't really made that social media connection. And I know with Wayfarer, the Natural Museum of History um, in San Diego as well is doing this in tandem with me. And so the guy there, Robert, we had both come to Wayfarer and said, like, we need to have social media, like, you need to be able to log in to social media when you're in Wayfarer because people should be able to post photos and, you know, go through our app because, or their app technically, because then that'll get them, you know, more awareness. And because I think their plan, their hope, is that they're going to have it throughout all of Balboa Park eventually. So it would be kind of good for them to have that social media integration, but they don't. And so it's, you know, as someone who does social media, it's like, oh, my God, I can't, you know, use hashtags. I could, and I, But I have because one of the points of interest in the app, I took a bunch of historical photos from around 1915 to about like 1945 of the area around the museum because they also had a big um, exposition. And I kind of said like, you know, take your own photos and post them to Instagram and use these hashtags because I was like, I'm just so annoyed that we can't, you know, have that social media integration. So I'm still kind of forcing it just by writing it and we'll see how that goes. You know, it'd be a lot easier if I could say like, okay, you can log into Instagram immediately and just, you know, touch the icon, but we'll see if people will still take the extra step, but it always makes it easier if you, basically hand it to them and it's like, oh, I can log into Instagram and immediately post this? Sure, I'll do it. But if they have to get out of the app, log into Instagram, take the photo, use the hashtag, I don't know if it'll actually happen. Yeah, it does seem like a lot of steps to ask users to go through that if it's more seamless, then we're likely to do it. I know in your thesis you talked a little bit about it's important to say no sometimes when evaluating digital technologies for use in museum. Can you talk about more about how you kind of appraise that, that you don't have to do everything at once and that it really needs to see what's a good fit for that particular museum or that particular exhibit? Absolutely. Like when I did my thesis, that was definitely like, don't shoot for the blue sky project immediately. I mean, I'm, I'm all excited if people want to do that because then that means they are interested in new technology and, and want to make it happen. But realistically, unless you've got this giant grant and hired people that have done it before, doing that big project first probably isn't necessarily going to work. It could. I'm sure there are museums out there that have just suddenly accepted new tech in the biggest ways and it totally worked. But I feel like in my experience, it's good to take the baby steps and so kind of think, well, you know, what if a museum has most of their collection not out in the exhibit, which is usually the case, um, when I worked for the Phoebe Hearst Museum of Anthropology at UC Berkeley, mostly they were closed. And so they just had social media as basically their, we're still here. Sorry, you can't come and visit us because we're you know, revamping the inside of our small museum. And we've got this giant collection. So we can just show pictures of all these objects and it'll still keep people involved even though they can't actually physically see them. And it took off and did really well. So I think just thinking about like what you can do in each situation, depending on if you're closed, um, you've reopened, you've got a new exhibit, you 
suddenly got a lot of money, you don't have a lot of money, think about like what you can do and reach out to companies that do create new tech. I know in the Bay Area there are a few that you know do work with museums and kind of come as consultants and obviously someone like Wifair who they're doing all of the you know coding um, and handling that aspect, the you know troubleshooting and I'm just writing the content. So if you're able to collaborate with companies that look at nonprofits and give them discounts, you know, you kind of have to think about what suits your budget and what suits your um, staffing. Because, you know, in this case, I'm really the only one that's spearheading it and I'm shooting video and I don't know how to shoot video. And so having also the kind of realistic expectations of it's not going to be like, a Steven Spielberg movie, <laughs> but it's still going to excite the visitor. It's going to be something different and something new. So just having, you know, the understanding that there's going to be problems no matter what, and it's not necessarily going to be the best right off the bat, but that it's worth it in the long run. I think that's really an important point is that it, it can be iterative and it's actually better not to put the, the whole chunk of your investment or time in ahead of time because you're inevitably going to find bugs or things that users had different needs. You know, people at the museum weren't as interested in this, but really wanted this type of uh, presence instead. Can you talk a little bit about how you evaluate things? I think that is a great advantage of the digital projects over some of the school exhibits is they are relatively easy to change on the fly. Sure. Um, and that's something that I've definitely brought up with the Museum of Man is that it's like if they find that one of the points of interest, the video is never watched, it's never accessed. I know that you can, Wi-Fi itself has metrics that um, they can access. So since it's only a six month position, I'll be gone, but they'll be able to check. And, um, and if they see that it's not doing well, they can take it out, delete it, they can change it, you know? And, and so I had brought up evaluation as like an important concept as someone that, you know, got a master's in museum studies, like we have been pounded into us that evaluation is like a huge topic that you need to address. But a lot of times because museums are short on time and money, you can't spend the time on it, but you can, it's so easy to see, are people downloading this app? Are people using it? Are they accessing all corners and, you know, and then tailor it from there. So I'm hoping that, when I leave, they take the time to just look into that and look at the numbers and see how it's doing because on the other side of it is that I'm not handling any of the PR and so actually getting it out there that there's this app to download is the other side of it. And so I'm hoping that all of that comes through and then they can change and, and work with it as it happens. And on that note, since you, know, you are on a, a contract position, what sort of process do you have in place to hand over the keys to this application or to the content that's in the application back to the museum after you're done? That is a very good question. <laughs> it's something that I've uh, worried about a little bit. I mean, obviously, once my work is done, my work is done, and, and but I do also want to be responsible and, and give them an easy path. I don't know who's going to take it over. Um, my plan is that, you know, I had, I wrote out a content development plan before I even started, so I had each stop laid out. And so they have a content management system that you just access um, online. So just giving them the login to that, you know, I'm basically just gonna ask who is taking this because someone has to be responsible and then I'll just, you know, probably spend a day running over it with them. So hopefully that, that goes well, um, but that is kind of the problem with museums is that there is a lot of turnover and I don't know if it, how that works into new tech because if they do a lot of contract positions and people show up and write and, and create and it's like, okay, bye, have fun, you know, who has been there if things go wrong, you know, why fares in Canada, so to troubleshoot it if, if something isn't working in the app is kind of a big issue. So I'm going to hopefully write out a lot of like contact numbers and, and any issues that I've come across while I've been doing it. It, it seems so simple, but just having that there I think will hopefully help people so they're not just left hanging <laughs> when I leave. Yeah, well, and obviously it would be preferred if you could be there longer, if they could call you up for support every once in a while. Um, but that's something I found in kind of Passwork too, is really trying to finish off the project with, you know, here's a guide. If some new intern comes in or if 
someone that's there but maybe isn't the most tech savvy can literally follow screenshots and step-by-step to, hey, I want to edit the text on this point of interest like you were saying. It's pretty important, and sometimes in the past hasn't been done with some of the digital tools that I've seen other museums, for example, that, that this is great when we had it, but now it's outdated, and we don't really know how to change or update it anymore. Exactly, and, you know, when I started using the content development system, I had no training on it. They basically just said it's very user-friendly, and it is, which is fantastic. So, uh, but I, I don't want to say that I'm naturally intuitive and thus better than anyone else, but I, I do feel like I have a little bit of like an idea of how those things work, and because I'm so comfortable with working with things online and working with social media, and so it is very easy to just go tab by tab and 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 how to place stuff and place point points of interest. But um, yeah, it, it is interesting to think that there isn't like a guidebook that I can just hand someone and be like, here, you'll be fine. You know, if I could do it, you can do it, which is true because really I came into it just with my own knowledge and kind of ran with it. And so I think if you have the mindset that, oh, I'm going to screw this up because I'm not comfortable. It all comes back to being comfortable with new tech or at least open to working with it and learning and not getting impatient because that, like I know with my mom, she will get super impatient with anything um, that has to do, if it doesn't immediately work. So just being able to sit with it and be like, it's okay. I, yeah, cause I've run into problems and I just have to go, it's, it'll be fine. Just keep, you know, running through stuff and clicking things and hopefully not things that will delete stuff, but you know, just learning the entire space before I jump in and start creating content because then you're kind of jumping the gun. So yeah, I, I hope whoever, Whoever takes it on has that same patience because I know it can be hard. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, there's definitely a difference between, again, people that are, are comfortable and have the time, honestly, to fool around with something and learn the system um, and those that, you know, will get frustrated after about five minutes and say, not for me. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a, you know, substantial obstacle. I think those of us that work with digital technology <laughs> underestimate how intimidating that can be for someone that, you know, hasn't used a cell phone, a smartphone, or grown up with, you know, using computer pretty much daily. Um it can be a hard thing to overcome, and it's something that training hopefully will will alleviate, but it's not necessarily a young, old thing either. It's more of, you know, if you're that type of person that has been exposed to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I always try and keep myself aware of that. I never want to come across as someone that, know, because I know more, I then necessarily have you know, control over what someone else does. Like, I, I always want to make sure, like, when someone's learning how to use new tech that I don't come off as condescending, which I know can be hard with anything when you are, I wouldn't even say I'm a master at this, but I've done it, so I understand it, and I want to think about it from the terms of when I didn't understand it, how did I learn, and, and what really helped me, and it was really doing it and having mentors that like just kind of let me play and knew that yes yeah, the internet so it's permanent if you leave it there too long but or in this case you know it's not necessarily internet but digital stuff it's written it's there you can take it down but you have to take it down before a lot of people see it so it's just having someone there that can basically edit and read over what you've written before it goes out there but letting you start the process so just having really great mentors is a big like Plus, and I'm very grateful to have people in my life that helped me kind of get there. And so I hope I can then be a mentor for someone someday um, that uh, will not 
make someone feel like they can't explore and kind of just, you know, have fun with new tech because I know it can come with a lot of negative, you know, aspects and I don't want people, I want people to be happy about new tech. So, um, yeah, I, we'll see. Because you're basically sort of on temporary contracts and stuff, if this job ends and you're not, it's not renewed and stuff, what are your plans for the future? Are you planning on doing more of this sort of social media stuff? Are you looking to do something else? Yeah, that's always something that I have to worry about because a lot of the positions that I've had in the last, it's almost four years now since I started going into museums, have either been paid internships that are time-based, they're limited, or I have to move on because they're just not sustainable, which is kind of a scary but real aspects about museums that I'm not afraid to point out because jobs disappear in museums a lot or you know they're going to disappear. So thinking about that is always kind of like in the back of my mind, which can be really tiring because moving around that much, I mean, I know there are lots of consultants and, and some people that are used to that, but I would love to just sit in a job for at least two years and just really spend the time. Like I would have loved to spend more time on this project because I think it could have benefited from that. Any project really can benefit from more time. So yeah, I always just kind of keep an eye out on the jobs. And I'm new to San Diego, so whenever I move to a new area, it's always kind of like, okay, I have to see you know, what museums are here and kind of research and visit and um, get the culture of what museums are like. So I think that goes with any field. Where you're living kind of makes a difference on what opportunities are going to be available. So I want to stay in new tech and museums. It's just whether or not there's the right position. Um, there are always usually a lot of social media positions in museums because I think more and more museums are realizing that's something that they need and that it can't just be like a tacked on position to someone else. So. I kind of keep an eye out for that, but I really loved doing this. Um, this was the first time that I really created content um, for an app, which is a still a little bit different, so I would love to find something similar. I just don't know what that looks like and if I would have to move again to follow that. Speaking of the future, is there any sort of tech and in the museum sector, and now I'm going to forget, there's a blog the future of museum, I believe it's called, mm -hmm. or something like that, where they talk a lot. Of, yeah, they talk about a lot of like future trends that might be happening in museums. A lot of tech. Are there any trends that you're pretty look, looking forward to, or you're hoping to get involved with, or you're hoping the directions that museums would take? Uh, yes, because I've stuck mostly to history and anthropology museums because that's what my background is in. When I did my thesis, I found that the trend was that it is shifting and changing. When I did a survey, I originally did it simply at anthropology museums, thinking that they would talk to me and give me feedback, and a lot of them didn't. So then I opened it up to all museums and kind of just posted it on LinkedIn forums and posted it on people's Facebook pages and just said, like, hey, if anyone on your staff has time to take this survey, you know, it was just kind of a brief overview of, of what new technology is being used in museums. and. Definitely a lot of science museums are clearly pro-new tech because they kind of have to be, I would say. I did find that, you know, people are, are still more open to it. It was just in my field, unfortunately, of anthropology, they didn't really want to respond. But that was also in 2013. So it's almost going to be two years since I wrote that uh, thesis. So I'm really curious to see how quickly things have changed because, like I said, new tech is constantly evolving. And so I think the people that are going to use it are also going to be more open to it. So keeping up on the trends is always a task because when you're so focused on what you're doing and making it happen, it could be behind the times. And I do think in a lot of ways that this app isn't the like top of the line coolest. Like it doesn't have augmented reality, you know, through the camera phone. It doesn't have anything crazy. So being aware of that, you know, when I was doing my thesis of what, those big blue sky projects were and trying to decide, okay, do I want to try and chase that and work with those museums that are able to do that? Or would I rather work for the museums that are trying to learn and, and 
at least get there, take the first step. And I found myself doing the latter, kind of, you know, sticking with the museums that are smaller, don't have the funds and kind of being someone that can help them get there and then leave, which, you know, sucks kind of for me because then I don't get to experience a lot of the benefits of those changes, but maybe that'll change for me and I'll decide to, you know, work for the Smithsonian if I really doubt that's going to happen, <laughs> but it'd be great. <laughs> but yeah, I just, it's really great to see how museums are reacting to technology and using it to interact with visitors. Well, Nicole, I think that's a, a pretty important point is that there are these much, much larger museums um, that have a lot more funding, whether they're private museums or they have a lot of backers that can try out the crazy new stuff as soon as it comes out. I know some museums here are working with like augmented reality and virtual reality, like the Oculus Rift headsets, but often they get to experiment with it and then find best practices. Do you have any resources that you look to to find what people are doing that's new and then try to find ways that maybe they have a subset of that that's very well tested and some of the bugs have been worked out that maybe you could propose to other museums to use? Yeah, that was something that I kind of produced out of my thesis was a list of recommendations. It was very like simple and a lot of it was just what I considered common sense, which was, you know, having conversations, talking to other museums, looking to see what other museums are doing and then reaching out to those staff members that implemented that new tech. Um, it's, it's, the museum community, at least in the United States, but even abroad, all around the world, um, are very willing, I've found, to talk to each other, um, as long as, especially with people in new tech, because if you send them an email, they're most likely comfortable just sending an email back saying, sure, we can talk about this. So it's as simple as just having those conversations, and if they produce, um, I wouldn't say like a handbook, but something that showed how they got where they are, like if they had a, um, a digital, oh gosh, I forget what it's called. It's got a name, I wrote it in my thesis. It's basically like a digital guide on like, if over the next five years, you know, we plan to implement these different types of new tech and here's why and here's how and then here's what happened if they already did it over the five years or if they're halfway through it, like if they can talk about any problems that they came across, um, that's definitely it. But then, you know, websites like um, the Future Museum Center, Future Museums, um, there are just a lot of forums where people will talk about what they're doing. And I went to a conference in 2013 that is called Museums in the Web. Um, it was in uh, Portland at the time, but it's usually like most conferences always kind of changes around, but that to me felt like the most focused museum conference for me personally, because it was focusing on internet and new tech and how museums were using that. That was like an awesome networking opportunity, totally influenced my thesis because then it was like, oh yay, I'm surrounded by all of these professionals that want to put new tech into their institutions and are talking about what they're doing, what projects they have. So. If anyone is interested in kind of getting into that side of things, I know conferences are expensive, but you can volunteer. Going to that totally changed like my direction in um, what I was doing, and, and not really my direction, but kind of pushed me and really accelerated what I was doing. So that I think finding a conference in whatever field you're in and whatever like specific. Um, topic that you work in really helped because I, I love AAM conferences and I know CAM, um, the California Association Museums uh, conference is happening in San Diego this month, but those can be very broad and so it's usually one lecture that kind of suits you. So if you're going to spend the money going to something that really covers like all of your topic <laughs> would be ideal. So that was definitely an ideal situation for me. Talking about kind of future technologies, do you have any ideas or plans of ways that content that's created, say, for Twitter or for the app that you're building, is there a way to archive that, the videos, the, the writing, everything that's associated with it, so maybe that, that can be reused more easily if you decide to do it in the future do a VR exhibit or the museum decides to do more of a web presence with it? That's definitely something that I've thought about because a lot of the videos that I've created are very, you can just use them, you can play them in an exhibit, you can post them online, they're just snippets 
about exhibits in the museum. So, I mean, I, at this point, I've been hosting a lot of what I've finished on their server, just in a folder, which, you know, is very simple. So they have access to it. So I'm not just going to leave, be like, huh, you can't, you know, do anything with these videos now. I took them because I definitely, it's, you know, it's my material, but I want them to be able to use it the best that they can. So yeah, I'm keeping a lot of <clears throat> the raw files just sitting there in their server um, definitely, I think, is the easiest way. And I have all of the written copy in Word documents, so if they ever want to just, you know, copy-paste it into something else, they can totally use that. So just kind of leaving a digital trail of everything that I've done is kind of how I have managed that and kind of do with social media, too. Um, I mean, luckily now, like Twitter and Facebook, you can have, you know, obviously if the sites go down, then that's one thing, but, you know, Twitter, you can access your archive in a zip file now, so you just have all of your past tweets, and, but I used to, back in the day, use a calendar that just kind of had what I posted each day, so that I had a backlog of, like, what I posted, and, but that was kind of, you know, archaic in a sense, because it was just Word, but it worked, and so I think just having any type of written online backed up form of that is kind of huge because say Wifarer goes down and you can't access any of the videos, you know, what does the museum do? So I want to make sure that I don't screw them over. <laughs> no, it's really great that you are keeping track of that content. I know, again, this is something some of the larger museums do, but have um, kind of content archival systems where they have an index of everything that's been done or written. Uh, but those, I've, I've met a lot of resistance to at some museums, that they're used to doing things the way that they are and, you know, the, the notorious shared drive that everything's on there, but very few people can find it unless they already know where it is, is um, an issue. And I think something I'd like people to work on in the future is taking care of those digital materials and archiving them the same way that we do our paper materials, I think would be a huge step. Absolutely. And that was something that, you know, as a contractor coming in and not really knowing anything about the museum other than what I've seen on their website. So that relies on their website being fantastic. And then showing up and having access to their server, but not knowing what folders should I be going into, you know, kind of had to ask those questions of, okay, you know, where is a lot of the content that then I can write my own content off of. And so, yeah, that is really important to have, if you're going to bring in someone for a short amount of time, have that archival system that is easily searchable. And yeah, I, I completely understand what you're talking about because it was interesting. And so I, I guess that is a worry that my little Wi-Fi folder is just going to, you know, fall into a black hole in that system and no one will ever be able to find it. So hopefully if I tell enough people before I leave, the um, file path that they will find it and not just lose it forever. So this may be kind of an oddball question, Nicole, but if funding were not an issue, if you had full support from a museum, do you have any dream projects that you would just be like, this is what I, the blue sky that you talked about that is always, you know, cut down because of funding or time or resources? Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think. I love doing a mobile app, uh, obviously, I mean, I know how to write HTML, and I did that for a museum, the Treasure Island Museum. It was literally just, like, basically a web page with videos, so it was very simple. So doing, writing digital content, I would love to do that on a bigger scale, possibly with something that's actually in the museum versus on someone's phone, so, like, a touch screen of some type, um, and... So just being able to work with some tech companies that have that big blue sky technology that's, you know, really interesting. When I wrote my thesis, the augmented reality stuff totally threw me because I am a gamer and the Oculus Rift blows my mind and freaks me out. And so I think museums really need to utilize that because considering a lot of museums um, go back in time and or go to other locations being able to put that on and, you know, send visitors to another place um, or show them, you know, what the area that they're in looked like 100 years ago or thousands of years ago, if they can, you know. So doing something like that that's really, like, trippy and um, kind of, I don't know, to me that just screams future, I'm sure, in, like, five years, 
there's going to be something even crazier. So I don't know. But when I found out that that um, was readily available and not super expensive, um, I think that museums could totally utilize that. I just don't know what I would do. Like, I think sometimes even I get really intimidated by new tech and think, okay, yeah, it's totally easy, you know, write, you know, a paragraph for an app and post a video. Um, but having to create something on a large scale because I've never done it, I would want to make sure that I had the right group of people that could really support me and work with me. So I think I would love to do something that's big scale, big touch screens, virtual reality, augmented reality, but I wouldn't want to do it alone. This is sort of a question I ask most of our, our guests on the podcast. I know you pretty much learned most of your social media skills, basically trial by error, learning stuff like that. But do you have any resources or anything you could point some of our listeners to who might be interested in doing your job? Um, obviously not your exact job, but be a social media uh, person for museums. Can you give them some advice, some places to learn? Anything along those lines to help someone who would like to sort of follow in your footsteps and do something similar to what you do? Sure. I mean, the way that I got into it was an internship at my university. As I said, it was paid, so that was great. Um, but if you internships, I feel like for almost any field um, are a great way to get into it because they don't just or they shouldn't just let you do it. You know, they, they will guide you. And so that's how I learned because otherwise, you know, the social media that I do now is very free form. They kind of just trust me to do it. So if you can get in a situation like an internship where you know there's someone above you and so you're not just a social media manager because shooting for that job is kind of, you know, you have to have the background for it. Um, and just kind of looking at if you have a social media presence, I mean, you should if you want to go into social media just so it shows them that you are involved with Twitter and Facebook and you understand how it works, um, that you kind of monitor that presence. I mean, I won't be a perfect angel on social media. I mean, I definitely want to be myself. And if you want to have, you know, a professional account that they can look at so they see what you post that's just, you know, your field and then one that you just post about whatever you like and, and your rambling thoughts like I do, then that's kind of good to show that it's like, well, you know, they have a personality, they have a mind, and they don't just want to, you know, they don't just post, you know, photos and selfies and stuff. Like, they want to see that you know how to curate your own content. So kind of just thinking about that is really big. But, yeah, for me, it was really the internship. Like, getting a really good internship will take you far in pretty much any field. So... That one I just came across because they tweeted about it at Fresno State. So I saw it and was like, oh, I'll totally apply. So going onto museums' websites or whatever organization that you're interested in being a social media presence for, um, just checking their jobs. I use Indeed um, to look at jobs, indeed.com. So just kind of constantly being aware of that and just seeing what social media positions are out there. there. It is kind of weird because there are some social media jobs aren't going to be the type that I would necessarily want because, like you guys said at the beginning, you know, people that just post out content and they're just looking for someone to schedule posts and not be an interactive presence. So kind of being able to weed out those if that's not what you want to do. So kind of learning what they want out of that position is kind of big. So... Yeah, that's pretty much what I did. Great. Thanks for that advice, Nicole. I think that'll be useful to people that, you know, maybe want just a way to start getting involved and kind of see, like you did, is this being a new avenue for museums and heritage organizations to have more direct feedback and interaction. But, Nicole, do you have any personal projects, personal websites that you'd like to highlight? And then we'll make sure to put some of these in the show note as well. And then maybe when we can expect to see your app go live at the San Diego Museum of Man? Sure. I don't really have anything. I don't really have a personal website. I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just look up my name. Um, or find me on Twitter. I'm at Nicole Suzanne. So love to meet more people that are interested in these topics and love talking about it. The app is aiming to be launched in mid-March along with the Natural History Museum's app. So hopefully, fingers crossed, everything goes smoothly in the next month. Um, so far, it's going pretty well. So, And it should be, if you download it from the App Store, it's just called Wi-Fi, so like Wi-Fi, 
um, but why fairer? And it will, you can view it from anywhere. Right now, the Royal BC Museum in Victoria, Canada is on there. So we'll be on there once everything's done, and so you should be able to view it from wherever you are, um, even though you won't be able to see the actual exhibits. But check it out, and hopefully let me know what you think. Come, come follow me on Twitter. Great. And is that on Android or iOS or both? Both. Excellent. Well, thanks again for joining us again, Nicole. That was a really great interview, and thanks for answering all our questions. Thanks for having me. It really helped me think about what I'm doing and that it, it's important. So thank you so much. You're welcome. I really enjoyed the conversation. All right, folks, uh, that's the show for today. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you in the future of the field. That's it for another episode of the Archaeotech Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for this episode. You can also email us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag archaeotech or tag at archpodnet in your tweet. Please share the link to this show wherever you saw it. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.